0: Welcome back. Uh, we're in week four of our series, Guardrails. Um, if you haven't been with us, the, the premise of the series is to you know God's the one who transforms hearts. Okay, I, I can't I can't go and make my heart different. Okay, the Holy Spirit does that. I can participate with that. Um, I can obey the Spirit, but really, God is the one who transforms our hearts. However, we might be a little bit you know as we're waiting for this transformation to happen, we're, we're, we're living lives that are in danger of a lot of damage. Um, and so we've been looking at some really practical ways to, while we're waiting and while we're participating in the transformation of our hearts, some practical ways to avoid horrible damage. And guardrails is an appropriate, uh, it's appropriate for our congregation because we literally have somebody here who makes guardrails. Um, they're, they're much more, you know, they're not the old, you know, bendy metal ones. They're high-tech um, and so Jack and Traffic's Devices, they, they make these things for us. And Jack, actually, he's got a new product coming out. Um, so I thought we'd maybe do a little plug for that. Uh, do we have the, the, the crash test ready? Uh, you could, Yeah, Oh, look at this. Whoa. Oh, man. That's 60 miles an hour that plowed right into that thing. And, you know, driver uninjured. Uh, this is called the uh, the Delta Crash Cushion. Uh, I have a picture of it when it's not been destroyed, uh, coming up, hopefully. But the, I, Jack explained it to me, and Jack's, you know, an engineer and a business owner, so I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to what he was saying. But um, I think the idea is, is, is it's actually, it's, it's a rail, so like, like, instead of, you have your concrete barrier, right? You extend out with this metal rail. And uh, when you crash into it, the rail collapses. And as uh, so, like a larger truck, it collapses um, like more at the end. And for like a smaller car, it collapses uh, more at the beginning. And the secret, the secret ingredient, uh, is the delta. Uh, for those of you who are in math or engineering, delta is a triangle. Um, and the 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 interior of the is it titanium? What kind of metal is that, Jack? Do you know? Is it metal? What is it? Okay, it's steel. So the shape of the steel, the, the, the stuff inside the steel is little triangles. And this, ten, this actually turns out to be the most effective way of absorbing the, um, the impact. Significantly simple. Uh, Jack, um, what's the website where they can go and, and purchase these? <laughs> so uh, traffic's devices, Google it. Make sure you, uh, make sure you tell them that, that I sent you there so I can get my commission. Uh <laughs> This is not the only plug for a product today, which is appropriate, because today we're talking about money. Uh, money matters. And we're talking about money because money is one of those things, like last week we looked at sex, right? Um, it's one of those really big things where, you've, you know, our hearts are still being transformed. There's a lot of damage that can be done if we let, you know, these things get out of control in our lives, Right? And so we're going to look today, we're going to find out what the problem, what the danger is. Jesus is going to tell us what the danger with money is. And Jesus is going to show us how to set up rails to protect us from going off and, getting, and crashing. So let's take a look at Matthew 6 together. Um, this is my translation, mostly. Uh, and you'll see that. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate the one and love the other, or maybe also you'll be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. Therefore, and this is a little bit later in the passage, um, after the lilies in the field bit, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, don't worry and say, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? Pagans obsess over all that stuff. And your Heavenly Father already knows that you need it. So instead, first chase after God's kingdom and God's righteousness, and God will give you all of these things as well. Let's uh, take a closer look here at the the beginning. No one can serve two masters. And pagans obsess over all that stuff that you eat, you drink, you wear, you live, all that. Those two statements, um, especially the first one, no one can serve two masters, it presupposes something that Americans hate. Okay? It presupposes something that Americans dislike. And that is the notion that we are not free. Okay? Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. What he doesn't need to say is that you will serve a master, whether you like it or not. It's going to happen. Bob Dylan recognized this 40 years ago. Gotta serve somebody. It's a really great song. It's, a, it's part of his, you know, his Christian years. Not that they're not Christian now, but he was extra Christian in the 70s. Um, but he, he, he lists out all of these different you know, princes and paupers and business tycoons and artists and, and, and people of the street and people addicted to substances and people who are, are working their way up through the corporate structure. Every type of person that you can imagine. And he explains that every single one of these people, no matter whether you're at the top or the bottom or somewhere in the middle, you are chasing after something. And what you put your mind on, what you set your mind on, that starts to be the thing that you serve. And so Dylan says, you know, he's like, he's like you, you might serve the devil, you might serve the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. This is true about humans. We don't like this, um, but it, it's true. Whatever we set our minds and our hearts on ends up mastering us. And so if you think a lot about sex... Sex is going to control you. And if you think a lot about money, money is going to control you. And John, if you think a lot about your charger, your charger will control you. What is it? It doesn't matter. They're the same thing. Challenger, charger. Come on. Your Lamborghini, whatever you have. If you set your heart on it, and, and well, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, Sauron, the Dark Lord. What is the Dark Lord thinking about all the time? All of his thoughts are consumed with it. What's he looking, what's he thinking about? The ring, the precious. And he wants that precious, why? So he can control stuff, right? He wants the power, he wants to be in control. Isn't the whole point of the movie that he doesn't control the ring? The ring controls him. The Dark Lord is a slave, when the ring is destroyed, he's destroyed because it owns him, it masters him. Whatever you bend your mind towards, you will serve. Let's go briefly back to the text and think about that in the context uh, that Jesus sets it up, right? You can't serve two masters. You're going to love one or hate one and hate one. You're going to be loyal to one and, con- and have contempt for the other. Uh, they... If you look at older translations, it'll say either you will love the one and hate the other or you will uh, be loyal to one um, and, and despise the other. Uh, it's, it's, uh, the Greek construction there, the either or in Greek, um, the AA, uh, it, it doesn't have to read either or. Like in, in English you say, I want ice, either I want ice cream or pizza. And if you say that, the idea is the person listening is like, you're either going to have ice cream or you're going to have pizza. You, you know, they're not together. You can't do both. Uh, The the Greek either-or construction doesn't work like that. It works a lot more like, I'm so hungry, I'm so very, very hungry, I'm going to go to the pizza store, and I'm going to get a slice of pepperoni mushroom, or jalapeno sausage, or maybe extra cheese. Now you hear that, and it's possible I come back from the pizza store with just pepperoni mushroom. That could happen. But it's also possible I come back from the pizza store with all three, Right, They're not exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive. And this is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, if you've got two masters, two bosses, you're going to hate one, you're going to love the other. Also, you're going to be loyal to the one that you love, and you're going to have contempt for the one that you hate. Uh, for those of you who have uh, already checked out and are looking at your phones, uh, Brian, I see you in the back. Brian, um, I want you to look up, uh, I got a picture of it here. Um, just go to Amazon.com. Uh, 1 to 3 John. The author is Thomas Andrew Bennett. Uh, you can pre-order it today. Uh, it's available, right, um, $16 on Kindle. I think it's like 30 bucks paperback. Both are a great deal. Make an amazing gift for all your family and friends. Go ahead, get those, and you don't have to pay attention to the sermon. You you, you buy those, I'm, I'm happy. Uh, during the four-year <laughs> process of writing this book, um, it should have been done about two and a half, but um, the second year, at the beginning of the second year, I was writing. My editor, uh, Joel, got very, very sick um, to the point that he was mostly out of commission for about eleven months. He was in and out of the hospital. He almost died five or six times. I mean, horrible. Um, and so, obviously, during that time, he wasn't. It wasn't high on his priority list to, to look at what I was submitting, right? And so, uh, my publisher they gave me a, another editor, uh, Trevor. And Trevor sort of took Joel's place, and he looked at all the stuff I'd submitted. He said, this is garbage. You're going to have to rewrite it because you need to do this, this, and this, and this. I was like, oh, man. That is terrible news. And so I rewrote, you know, 65,000 words, whatever it was. Um, And and Trevor Trevor looks at it, and he's like, okay, finally you're on track. Well done. At that point, Joel got better. And he looked at the 65,000 words. He said, what happened? How would you screw this up so badly? Uh, you're going to have to rewrite these 65,000 words. It's like, thank you. Thank you, sir. Oh, oh it's great. And, and, and so what happened, I had two bosses. I had two editors who were both looking at two different visions, and they clashed with each other. And so what happened is I started to secretly hate my second editor. And Trevor, if you ever listen to this sermon, I, I confess my hatred for you, my contempt. Because you didn't know Joel's vision, and you told me you wasted a year of my life but I'm not bitter at all. It turns out that when you've got two people in charge, they have differing ideas of what ought or ought not to happen. And you can't meet everybody's needs. In this case, Jesus says, God and wealth. Okay, God has certain needs and desires. Wealth has certain needs and desires. You can't meet both needs. God's needs and wealth's needs are going to clash. And you can only deal with one. So what is wealth? It's uh, interesting. Those of you who know the, um, the old King James version of this text, you might remember um, you cannot serve God and mammon. You remember that word Mammon. Uh, that, that word is a, a transliteration from the Greek. Mammon, mamona is, is the Greek word there. And it's a very odd word to use to talk about money. Uh, it's very rare in, the, in, in, in Greek, especially the Greek New Testament, uh, to use this word. And that's why they they just transliterated it into English, mammon. Because it's, it's, it's an odd word to talk about money. Money is normally talked about in terms of silver or gold. Uh, you can even say drachma, you know, stuff like that. Or it's ta- talked about in like a day's wage Um, There's lots of different words the New Testament uses, but mammon is very rare. And that's because it it, it covers a really wide spread of stuff, okay? So you could say, um, I'm concerned about my mammon, and you could mean, I'm concerned about all of my properties that I own. You could say, I'm concerned about my mammon, and you could be saying something like, I'm concerned about my piles of money. I'm concerned about my mammon could mean I'm concerned about uh, my steak dinners that I love so much. I'm concerned about my mammon could mean I really, really am worried about my fleet of snowmobiles. The idea is it doesn't just mean money. It doesn't just mean riches. It doesn't mean just stuff. It doesn't mean just property. It means kind of like that whole gamut of money and what it can get you. And so wealth, I think, is a really good English translation because it kind of captures that, right? Well, if you're talking about your wealth, it could be, you know, the properties you've accumulated, it could be uh, your stacks, uh, your stacks of Benjamins, whatever. That could all be your wealth. And the reason Jesus does this is because he understands that there's really two ways, mostly two ways, that human beings get caught up or messed up by money or by stuff. So, for example... I am a member of the middle class. Alright? Based on what I have and don't have, I'm, I'm hanging on by my fingertips in into the, into the middle class. And so I have a different relationship with wealth than those of you who are in the upper classes. Okay? So for example, if, I, if you're thinking in my, my mentality, the way I think, what I think having wealth means, what would it be to be wealthy? It would be to get A 77-inch OLED LG signature, C8. That's what wealthy people do. In my mind, a wealthy person is someone who gets the best TV on the market. Because they have enough stuff, they have enough riches to get what they want. And who wouldn't want that gorgeous, gorgeous screen? I actually had a book about this maybe 20 years ago, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And it was kind of like it was describing the different mentality that that people have about wealth. People like me, who have never had millions and millions of dollars, um, we we think like, man, I want to you know increase my monthly take home by five thousand dollars so I can blow thirty-five to five thousand of it on this TV. Right? The whole point of getting more is to acquire more, to get more. I, if, if I want raises, not so I can like, you know, plan for the future or provide college to my kids, but so I can get a TV. That's how I think. And so you might notice, if you pay attention to my spending habits, that I squander quite a bit of my income. I should say hour, because I spend Aaron's money too, which is great. But that's not how rich people think, right? That's not, I got here on um, you know the, the biggest billionaires of the year. Um, we had a big move by Elon Musk this year. Way to go, buddy. Cracked the top ten thanks to, you know, whatever he did with his stock in Tesla or whatever it is. He now, he's, now, he's now one of the top ten billionaires in the world. Jeff Bezos hanging on to number one. But wait, friends. He's got a divorce. And when that thing comes through, that $140 billion might get cut in half. So, he's, he's going to move down the list significantly once uh, the divorce figures. Mark Zuckerberg looks like he's 14. He's either a lizard or he's 14. I just can't wait till that guy dies. It's going to be a great day for everyone when Facebook is canceled and Mark Zuckerberg is gone. I don't know what to say about Bill Gates, except that he bought an island. He bought an island off the, the coast of Washington. The point is this. So, I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay, I need more money so I can get a TV. You know what Elon Musk has never thought? He's never like, if I can just get a few more billion, I'll finally be able to afford that top-of-the-line Tesla. Like, I'll finally be able to have it. He's never thought that. Elon Musk has more Teslas than he knows what to do with it. Jeff Bezos has never been like, I got a few more billions. I can finally afford that private jet. He's already got 10. He doesn't think about what he can get. Now, these guys, when you've got wealth, a lot of money— You think about growing it. You think about what it gets you when you walk into a room and everyone's like, oh my gosh, it's Elon Musk. He's making an underground railroad in Los Angeles and suddenly you're nice to him, right? Oh my gosh, it's Mark Zuckerberg. He invented this thing at Harvard and now, gosh, I should be nice to him and listen to his opinions on things. Oh my gosh, it's Bill Gates. He invented Microsoft. I bet he knows what to do about this COVID virus. Let's listen to him. They're sitting there and they're not sitting around being like, what can I get? I need to get more stuff. They have everything they want. They have more than they could possibly ever get. They're sitting there, they're they're thinking about about stacking up their riches versus the guy next to them. They're thinking about what getting a few more billion is going to do when they walk in the room and they, they see that politician and they see that girl or whatever it is that they're after, right? They're thinking about the status that stockpiling riches can get them. And so there's two different kinds of ways that you can go. And they broadly correlate, although not entirely. They correlate, tend to correlate with your economic class and status. The poor and the middle class tend to think that, that the whole point of money is to spend it on all the stuff that makes me happy. And the wealthy tend to think having more gives me more status, makes me more powerful and more awesome and more great. And even though I look like a lizard, people will still treat me like royalty. Stockpiling and squandering. Hoarding and spending. And if you get on one of these two trains, it can absolutely wreck your life. Squandering can put you in the poorhouse. Stockpiling can destroy all the relationships in your life. And so Jesus uses this big word to cover it all. Whether you're a stockpiler or a squanderer, money is going to own you. Unless God owns you first. So what's Jesus' solution to this problem? At the very end of the text, you know, pagans, they, they, they obsess over what we eat, what we drink, what we wear. They're always, that's another one with, uh, you know, if you're ultra wealthy, looking good, you know, having the newest designer do your clothes, whatever. That, that's the stuff that pagans worry about. your heavenly Father already knows that you need it. I just added the already because um, in the Greek there's a repetition of these things, these things, indicating that the Father is keenly aware of where you're at and what you need. He's not ignorant. And so Jesus says, here's the solution. Instead, instead of being owned by wealth, instead of stockpiling and squandering, I want you instead to first chase after God's kingdom— and God's righteousness. And you know what? You're going to get this stuff too. Now how does that work and what does that mean? The first, if you know the old translation, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Uh, there, there's a problem there because I, I, it, it kind of sounds in English like you're like, where is it? If I can just find the kingdom, I know I'll be okay. Uh, kind of like you're, you're curious and you're looking for it. The, the, the The word there is really much more like, okay, you know where the kingdom is. Go get it. Go Go acquire it. Go after it. Chase after it. What does it mean to chase after God's kingdom and God's righteousness? And why do we have to worry about the kingdom and the righteousness? Why both things? What's the connection between chasing after God's kingdom and chasing after God's righteousness? Why are those things together? Well, the logic is something like this. Um, God's kingdom is coming. Jesus is going to rule. He's going to return in, In power and glory. He's going to rule over the world for a thousand years. We're going to be a part of that as resurrected people. We're going to be citizens of Jesus' kingdom, right? That's going to happen. That's coming. So if you're a citizen of Jesus' kingdom, how should you be operating? Well, you should be operating with the same virtues and moral character that God has. God's righteousness. If you do, you will fit very well into, into Jesus' kingdom. If you don't, you're going to be an odd fit. You're going to be an outlier, a weirdo. You're not going to know how to operate properly in, God, in Jesus' kingdom. God's righteousness leads to a comfortable fit, a, a right kind of living in Jesus' kingdom. It's a little bit complicated. It was uh, nicely illustrated in the, the Back to the Future trilogy, it's uh, one of my favorite scenes in the first Back to the Future. You know the movie, 1985. Marty McFly goes back 30 years. It's in 1955 America, which is a very much different place. And at one point, he gets a hold of a guitar, and he begins with uh, what is it, Chuck, Chuck Berry? Johnny Be Good, right? He's, singing, he's doing Johnny Be Good, and all the kids in the in the in the the prom are like, Oh my gosh, this is awesome! This is a great song. He's like Johnny Be Good. He loses himself in the moment. He's a child of the 80s. He's been introduced to metal. And so Michael J. Fox, uh, Marty McFly, starts a guitar solo that turns into him, like, trashing the guitar, listening to, like, feedback, blaring. Everyone's like, what, what is wrong with this kid? He's like, this is rock and roll. You may not like it, but your kids are going to love it. It's a great scene. But it indicates that Marty McFly is a 1985 kid with 1985 values, with 1985 way of doing life, with 1985, you know, this is what things should be like, and you plop him into 1955, and he doesn't fit. He has to learn different types of behavior in order to fit in, to to actually look like another 1955 kid. And of course, this goes on, you know, and the, the second one took place in 2015, which uh, correctly predicted that corporations would run the world, that was a, that was interesting. Incorrectly predicted that we would all have hoverboards, so it wasn't 100 percent correct. Uh, but in that one, you know, again, he has to like learn how to live in a dystopia. Then in the third one, he goes back to like 1875, and there's that great scene where he's like, "Can I just have a glass of water?" When he's at the table, and they pour they pour this like brown, gross water because he's like, "Wait, you don't have potable water running out of a tap?" Like, oh yeah, this is the 19th century. Things are different. Similarly, in Jesus' kingdom, you know, Jesus is going to be organizing things so that that, that finances, that wealth, are going to be directed towards the things that Jesus cares about. Right? And more than that, I mean, if you look at the Old Testament teaching on tithing, uh, you're going to find out that one of the reasons they tithe is to provide you know, good things for other people. You save 10% of your, you know, whatever you did in your farm, and then at the end of the year, you, you treat the whole village to, like, a wonderful feast, right? And that's in uh, Deuteronomy. There's also places where they talk about the tithe as, like, a way to finance the temple, right? You gotta, the, you gotta those bowls gotta come from somewhere, the Levite priest they gotta eat. So you set some aside to make sure that God's concern, his worship— is protected. And presumably those same values, that same focus that God has, is going to extend into the kingdom that Jesus lives in, that Jesus rules, and that we live in. And so we better start having that mentality that, that well, our, our money, our finances, our wealth, should be directed at what God's concerned about, and, and directed at other people, and providing uh, feasting for them, joy for them. If we do that, when the kingdom comes, we'll be ready. That's the last thing in your note sheet. When Jesus' is king well finances his desires and brings joy to his people. And even if your heart doesn't say, I want to finance what God wants to finance, and I want to bring you know, joyful celebration to other people, even if that's not where your heart is right now, Jesus seems to think you need to put in some guardrails to make sure that you don't go off. This is where ultimately you, you're going to be. This is where the Spirit is going to transform you. That you're going to be 100% directed. At Jesus, what you're concerned about, that's what my money is going to go towards. Jesus, what you're concerned about, your people, that's what my money is going to go towards. That's where you're going to get eventually. That's where your heart's going to be. But if it isn't yet, if it's not there yet, you've got to have a, a delta crash cushion in place so that you don't lose it when you go off the rails. And so I have a few suggestions that I think that um, are 100 percent in keeping with Jesus teaching uh, on the Sermon on the Mount for here and now. Some guardrails that we can put in place first. Number one, test the tithe. Um, great news: I never get to see finances. I'm, which, it's ludicrous that I have to be on the finance committee. I hate it. I think Dustin does a great job running it, but I can't stand those meetings. I just couldn't care less. Um, But I'm there. The irony is, I'm there, but I'm not allowed to look at a bunch of different stuff. Okay? And so I don't know what anybody gives. I really don't. I honestly don't even know what we give, because Aaron's in charge. So I'm completely, but I know this. There's probably some people here who don't tithe. Tithing, of course, is giving 10% of your gross, not your net. Dustin, do you know? Gross. Okay, Mike, you know. Gross. Okay, 10% of your gross and giving that to God. Um, if you're not doing that, Jesus is saying, look, I don't need the money, okay? Like, I'm, you know, Lord of the universe, I got all that I need. It's not like and in fact, if you look at our, our finances here at the church, our church is not in any financial danger at all. We've had really prudent leadership from the finance committee uh, over the last many years, and we're in a really good spot. And so when I say that you know, Jesus is, is saying test the tithe, it's not so he can get your money. It's so that he can see if something might happen to you over time if you do it. And so one thing you might start thinking about is, okay, so you're, you know, you're making $50 million a year. Um, 10% of that. Make sure you know, God gets it. You're making $30,000 a year. 10% of it. See that God gets that. And then see what happens over time. Because what Jesus' teaching seems to indicate is where you focus, that's what's going to own you. And so if you start directing your finances towards what God's doing then you're going to start caring a lot about what God's doing. Because that's where your money's going to go. And so you're going to let, let him be the master, and you're going to start worrying about what he's up to. And so uh, if you see that, like, say you give 10% to, the, to Coast, and you see that we're doing something really wrong, you're going to be like, hey, no, this is not what God wants. God does not want you to replace these pews with chairs. Absolutely not! That, <laughs> right? And so if you're if you if you if you're giving to coast and they're like, we're going to take your pews away, you'd be like, no, because you're going to start caring about ministry, and you know that pews are the only way to do church right. <laughs> Number two. <laughs> Finance the kingdom. So let's say that you've put 10%, you've, you're doing it, you're tithing, right? And you, you're like, you're, like you just, you're crushing it, you know, and you're doing your thing. Again, you know, this isn't like, this is about your heart, not about God getting stuff, okay? Um, I'm, I'm well compensated, I don't need a raise. I'd like more. I'm always, I'm, I'll never say no, you know, I'll just keep taking, take, take, take. But God doesn't need it, and I don't need it, to be honest with you. So you're you're tithing, you're tithing. Maybe start thinking about stuff that you know God's all about. Maybe you've noticed that God is not a big fan of the massive sex trafficking that's happening in North America. Well, maybe you can do something about it. Because once you start sending your money towards stopping sex trafficking you're going to start to really care about whether or not young girls and boys are being trafficked in this country. Number three, uh, a lot of us, and, and Aaron and I were 100% here uh, just a few years ago. A lot of us um, are constantly on the edge with money. Money is an anxiety issue for us because we're living uh, month to month. Paycheck to paycheck. Um, about four years ago, I think three years, four years ago, Aaron and I did with some other people in the church. We did the uh, Dave Dave Ramsey, you know, small group thing, and we went from having absolutely no concept of what money was to security over the course of about six months. One thing that you can do is you can say you're you're not ready to tie the yet because you. if you you tithe, you're not going to make rent, okay? That's where you're at, okay? What you could do is you could say, I want to be in a place where I can give God 10%. That's where I want to get to. I'm not there right now because if I did that, then I would be on the street. I guarantee you, if you and your spouse, or if you're single, just you, if you come to us and you say, I want to get there, you will get there. And Dave Ramsey can help. I know that Scott hates Dave Ramsey. I get that. He's a Looney Tunes, whatever. Scott's a financial manager. What does Dave Ramsey know? He only has like a radio program and a whole bunch of books or whatever. I know two of your, what, one book is a bestseller on Amazon? One of your, do you, how many books do you have? He has one book. It's a bestseller on Amazon. 99 cents. That's the third that's the third plug in the money sermon for Scott's book. Okay. Scott's got a better plan than Dave Ramsey. That's fine. But Dave Ramsey is a great place to start if you are in financial chaos. Okay? It's a great way to say, wait a minute. I want to get to a place where I'm secure. And I can tithe. And I can give God these things. And I can redirect my heart away from being owned by money, owned by squandering, uh, to a place where I can say, God, your, your desire is number one. We've got that material. I would love to share it with you. I would love to get you on the path to tithing and to security and to being concerned about what God's concerned about. Number four, save for others. Stockpilers tend to save for themselves because uh, stockpilers, you like what having command of money gets you. Well, one of the things that Dave Ramsey taught Aaron and I very early on is he, he has this joke where he's like, He's like, oh, yeah, every time you know, Christmas comes around, you're like, how am I going to pay for that? And he's like, what, you didn't know Christmas was coming? It only happens once a year. Ha, ha 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 It's a terrible joke. But the point is true. The true fact is we weren't thinking about others. And so we started saving monthly for Christmas so that we could bless people, we could give gifts, and not be terrified on, in January when the credit card came due. And what this does is it sets your, your, your already natural gift of being able to stockpile or your, your fear of, of, of squandering too much. And it says instead of looking at money as what it can do for you to get you your 77-inch TV or the respect of your peers, what it can do for you is it can allow you to take the people around you and bless them. And last but not least... Feast. The the Old Testament is very clear. The New Testament is also very clear that part of what God is doing when he gives money to his people is so that they can enjoy it. And so one of the things that you can do to put up a guardrail is you can say, I need to make sure that I'm doing something with money that is bringing joy to me and to those around me. Notice you cannot feast by yourself. Okay, Feasting by yourself, what's the point? Okay, it's no good. Feasting is something you do with others. First your family and then the people, your friends, and your and your community. Okay? And it's it's the kind of the standard in the Bible for what you ought to be doing with your disposable income. Right? You're looking for a place where you can set up and, and bless yourself and others with joy so that John can give me a ride in his charger. Right? Challenger. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, and, you know, who else has something I want? I don't know, but you guys can figure it out. So you have to come and then you can, you can... Hey, Tom, wouldn't it be fun to do this together? You're like, oh, sure. Oh, guns. Yeah, you guys all have guns. Hey, Tom, let's go shooting. I don't have a gun. I need your gun to shoot with. And so you can provide a feast by buying, by buying guns. <laughs> I think we lost the thread. <laughs> we... <laughs> We, we veered off into the Second Amendment. Bad, bad. Uh, okay, let's, let's, let's wrap this up. Um, you know, money, um, it's going to own you. It's going to be your master. You're going to become a stockpiler or a squanderer unless you put these rails up, unless you implement these simple practices so that you can remember that God is your master. That God is your king. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we, we thank you for the outpouring of gifts and provision that you've given this congregation. We thank you that um, we've got a lot to, in our benevolent fund that we can give to those who are in need. We thank you that we don't have a mortgage on our, our church building. We thank you for the way that you provided homes and shelter and food and clothing for everyone here. But God, we also confess that um, our hearts uh, can be consumed by the things we acquire and the need to, to squander money on the next steak dinner and and the next snowmobile. Or to stockpile it so that people think that we're important, so that we look good. And Lord, we pray that you send your spirit to transform our hearts, to give us the strength to impose some of these these rails, some simple things that we can start to to protect ourselves from falling into those traps. As we know that you work in our hearts to make us who you want us to be. We bless you, God, and we pray that our finances will be directed towards your desires and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.